Good to work hard, good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hi everybody! My name is Rachel Garnham and I'd like to welcome you to this Arise Festival event discussing Sylvia Pankhurst, Suffragette, Socialist and Scourge of the Empire. Um, today's forum is hosted by Labour Outlook, which is a fast growing website bringing you daily news and views from across the left and those at the forefront of resisting the Tories. And it's part of the Socialist Ideas series of discussions, um, more information about which will be posted in the chat during the event. So those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and we can't hope to transform the world without understanding it. So I'm really looking forward to, well, I'm really enjoying this series of discussions and looking forward to the other Friday discussions coming up on Marx and Engels, plus the, the Paris Commune. Um, but today, um, for me, what looked like the highlight of, of this um, festival of ideas, the great Sylvia Pankhurst. Um, so just to discuss Sylvia's relevance today, we're joined by Catherine Connolly, a writer, historian and expert on Sylvia Pankhurst. She is the author of Sylvia Pankhurst, Suffragette, Socialist and Scourge of Empire and editor of A Suffragette in America, Reflections on Prisoners, Pickets and Political Change. From militant suffragette at the beginning of the 20th century to an early voice on the dangers of fascism, to a campaigner against colonialism in Africa after the Second World War, Sylvia Pankhurst dedicated her life to fighting oppression and injustice. And this event's going to look at how this courageous and inspiring campaigner uh, is hugely relevant to socialists and those engaged in social movements today and not just socialists and social movements to but to everyone and women in particular who want a, a better world just as an aside my my daughter was put in um, Pankhurst house at her new school last year um, and although the the picture that they had in her school was of Emmeline Pankhurst I was pleased to explain that it was Sylvia who needed to be her inspiration and and role model and um on her continued relevance just last week at my local labor women's meeting we were discussing motions to send to labor's women's conference in october and um we we referenced um the suffragettes and women protesters over the ages in our our um, motion that we're sending to defend the right to protest which is as relevant today as it was 100 years ago 200 years ago. Um, so really looking forward to how we can bring the the history of Sylvia and, and what she achieved and make it relevant for today for, um, for everyone. So we want to have as many questions and comments from the audience as possible in the chat. And um, please do also let us know where you're tuning in from, because we know that people are joining us from all around the world. Um, We'll have time for a few rounds of questions from the audience after the speakers. And during the event, you can also tweet at, at Labour Outlook, which is at Labour Outlook and Arise Festival at Arise underscore festival. Um, and if you can, please also donate at the link provided. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you buy a ticket for the whole of Arise, a festival of left ideas, because we do need to sell hundreds of tickets to cover the costs of this amazing month of uh, events that are, are being put on. So um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce Catherine and uh, ask her to talk to us about um, Sylvia Pankhurst. Well, thank you very, very much, Rachel, um, for that very generous introduction um, for such a politically engaged introduction about Sylvia. And thank you very much as well to the organisers of the Arise Festival. It's absolute, it's an absolute pleasure um, for me to be able to come along and do this. And I very much look forward to hearing about, um, about the kind of questions that people have and, um, and ideas about Sylvia Pankhurst today. And that's really what I'm going to start off by, by talking about. Sylvia Pankhurst, as you've just heard, was a lifelong political activist, um, first of all in the militant suffragette movement, 
she was a anti-war campaigner. She opposed the First World War right from the start. Um, she was for most of her life a um, a newspaper editor. She, she edited these extraordinary um, radical newspapers, which pioneered a kind of journalism from below um, that tried to give a voice to the voiceless, um, included much kind of investigative journalism. She was immensely inspired by the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. She was one of the people who smuggled the writings of revolutionary Russians into Britain uh, to, to spread revolutionary propaganda. Um, and indeed, she went over to Russia. Uh, she was denied a passport by the British government, but she managed to get herself smuggled over to Russia in a, in a small fishing boat uh, to go over and debate with Vladimir Lenin, um, the, the leader of the Bolshevik party. She participated in these uh, enormous international gatherings of communists. Um, again, she, this, she had to do this under quite illegal circumstances. Um, she got herself to, to Italy to partake in the discussions there. Um, and then extraordinarily, she um, walked over the Alps at night um, into Germany at a time when um, the, the counter-revolution was, was in the ascendancy there. Um, and met uh, with radicals in, in their safe houses. She was a lifelong anti-racist, um, a lifelong anti-imperialist, and one of the first people to identify the dangers of the rise of fascism in Britain. At a time when Winston Churchill uh, was saying that had he been an Italian, he would have voted for Benito Mussolini, um, Sylvia Pankhurst, who knew a huge amount about Italian politics, was raising awareness about the dangers of fascism and how it represented an existential threat to all of the causes to which she'd committed her, her life. And it was in her opposition to fascism that led her really to the last great cause of her life, which was campaigning for the freedom of Ethiopia, um, which had been invaded by fascist Italy in 1935. Um, so she campaigned uh, particularly to raise awareness about uh, what the fascist occupation meant at a time when the British government and the French government uh, were very happy to appease Italian fascism, didn't see a problem with it. Indeed, it looked rather similar to their own colonialism uh, in, in Africa. So she was um, campaigning against that to raise awareness about it, and then later on to try and prevent the tentacles of British imperialism uh, attacking Ethiopia, invading Ethiopia as well. And in fact, that's where she ended her life. She went to live out there in, in the last few years of her life. So Sylvia Pankhurst always remained for the establishment a dangerous suffragette. She was never embraced by them. Um, in contrast, for example, to her mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, um, who ended her life when, when, you know, when she died, she was uh, standing uh, as a candidate for the Conservative Party. Um, and then shortly after she died, a uh, statue to her was, was unveiled outside Parliament. Sort of round the corner, um, not exactly outside Parliament. In fact, um, as I'm sure lots of people will know, it took until 2018 um, for a statue of a woman to to appear in Parliament Square itself. But still, that you know obviously was not going to be of uh, of Sylvia Pankhurst. So she always remained somebody um, who was dangerous for the establishment, uh, not just when she was a suffragette, which is what I'm going to focus on here. Um, but certainly, if you go to the National Archives, if you look at what the state uh, the British state was was writing about Sylvia Pankhurst. You know, they spied on her um, for years, um, and if you look at the kind of things that they were they were writing about her, she remained a, a thorn in their side. Um, and the files on her, which are, are large and extensive, um, are filled with the most kind of um, vile hatred on on the behalf of the the British establishment. Here is one example. Uh, that I quote in, in my book. Uh, this is from 1947, and this is written by a Foreign Office official um, to a British minister in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And he says about Sylvia Pankhurst, we agree wholeheartedly with you in your evident wish that this horrid old harridan should be choked to death with her own pamphlets. 
So that was the official view. Um, so if Sylvia Pankhurst wasn't uh, useful for the establishment, um, the mo it's very interesting, the moments in which Sylvia Pankhurst has been remembered and commemorated, the moments um, when interest in her has really peaked. Um, one such moment was during the 1970s, um, at the same time as the women's liberation movement. Um, it was in the 1970s that Sylvia's uh, masterpiece, her wonderful account of the suffragette movement, called the suffragette movement, um, which was first published in 1931, that was republished by Virago Press in the 1970s. It was also in the 1970s um, that the TV series Shoulder to Shoulder was screened, which really uh, was based on Sylvia's account and defined for a generation the kind of popular memory of the suffragette movement. There were a whole series of books um, and studies produced on, on Sylvia Pankhurst in this era, women's liberationists walking um, the spaces, the sites in East London that Sylvia Pankhurst had, had been to. Um, and this was because in that period, women's liberationists, especially socialist feminists, were looking from examples from the past um, in which the campaign for women's rights had been campaigned with the struggle against capitalism. Um, and they were looking for lessons from that struggle um, about how to wage uh, successful campaigns and how how to ensure that, that their campaigns in the present uh, were going to be ones that could not be co-opted um, and neutralised by the establishment. So I think it's very interesting um, that really the sort of second period of, of intensely revived interest in Sylvia Pankhurst is one that we are now living through. Um, one that comes in the wake of uh, the radicalization of a whole generation of activists through the anti-war movements in this country um, at a moment when we are seeing the highest level of industrial struggle since the 1980s. And this time um, at a moment when women form the majority inside the trade unions and have been um, amongst the most militant fighters in the most militant unions in that struggle. At a moment when the kind of nonsense that we were fed in the 1990s about the battle for women's liberation having been won, women having it all, um, has been exposed for, for the nonsense that it is. Um, I'm just going to mention a few examples of renewed interest in, in Sylvia Pankhurst. This won't be exhaustive and I, I apologize for that. Um, but for example, just in, in the last few years, um, there's, we've seen the publication of Rachel Holmes's masterful biography, um, of Sylvia Pankhurst, really, really detailed, kind of matches the, the scale and the color of Sylvia Pankhurst's own, the suffragette movement. Um, we've seen the musical Sylvia at the Old Vic, um, telling the story of Sylvia Pankhurst through funk and hip hop and soul. Um, the establishment of an East End Women's Museum, um, which, of course, has provided a lot of focus on Sylvia Pankhurst and the East London suffragettes. Um, walks, again, being done of East London um, to explore those suffragette sites. And you can do that if you read uh, David Rosenberg's books or go on any of his walks. Um, I do a number of walks of uh, Sylvia Pankhurst, East London, and of course my own work and publications that, that Rachel talked about, about Sylvia also I think are a part of, um, of this sort of moment of, of renewed interest in, in Sylvia. So if Sylvia Pankhurst is not useful for the establishment, her life, her political contribution has meaning and provides inspiration for people trying to make changes in the present. And I want to talk a little bit about why that is. Sylvia Pankhurst's formative experience came in the militant suffragette movement. Um, this derived from an organisation established in 1903 by her mother, Emmeline Pankhurst, in Manchester, called the Women's Social and Political Union. And what marked out the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, um, right from the start were the kind of women that it got involved. Whereas previously, the kind of women who were campaigning for the suffrage, for women's suffrage, 
um, tended to be liberal or even conservative women um, asking for parity with their husbands and their brothers. The Women's Social and Political Union was founded in an area of the country um, where women were uh, most densely organized into trade unions in um, the cotton factories in Lancashire, around Manchester, called Cottonopolis. Um, so it involved women trade unionists and women like the Pankhursts, um, who were from more middle class backgrounds, who were involved in the early labor movement, uh, the Independent Labor Party and, and organizations like that. So that's what distinguished it, first of all. Um, and then just before the 1906 general election, um, they really distinguished themselves through the kind of tactics that they were they were using. And those tactics were drawn from the political milieu um, from which they were founded. They were inspired, for example, um, by the campaigns around unemployment, uh, which used direct action to draw attention uh, to their struggle. And the Women's Social and Political Union decided this was the kind of thing they were going to do, that instead of asking politely, lobbying, writing letters, all of those kind of things, um, they themselves were going to use direct action and civil disobedience, uh, what at the time became called militancy, to draw attention to their cause. But the politics of the organisation changed over time. And um, they rejected those early alliances that they'd made with the labor movement, with the trade unions, um, as increasingly they courted the support of uh, wealthier women, um, women that were deemed to be more prominent in society. Um, of course, the press became far more interested um, if the women being sent to prison were a name, um, someone that, that people knew. And increasingly, an argument was made that it was wrong to rely upon working class women to carry the campaign. The ideals of sacrifice and things like that were um, invoked. Um, and the way that this was reframed was it was the duty of wealthier women in society to campaign on behalf of their poorer sisters. So essentially a marginalization of working class women from the campaign and exclusion of them um, on the basis that the things um, that the, the vote could be campaigned for um, by by other more privileged women. And along with that came the idea that the campaign um, should take up only um, the question of women's issues, um, should be a single issue campaign focused upon votes for women and not all of the other issues that in inspired women to join the campaign in the first place. But what were defined as simply women's issues, in fact, reflected a class experience it was very easy for upper class women to separate out the issues of low pay, high rents, poor working conditions, all of those things from political campaign for the vote or indeed to prioritise the vote and to say this was the most important question for women. And the other things could be sorted out um, once, for example, women were able to become bosses uh, in, in the workplace or, or things like that. That wasn't true for working class women. For working class women, these issues were integrally linked. Women's inferior status inside society, which was embodied in the fact that they were denied uh, their citizenship, their right to vote, also justified paying them poverty wages. Um, the experience of living in poverty, of being told that your wage wasn't important because there ought to be a, a male breadwinner, um, all of those, those kind of things exacerbated um, and defined the experience of women's oppression for working class women. And indeed, giving some more socially privileged men uh, the right to vote hadn't resulted, for example, um, in the poorest men in society getting a wage rise. Um, so for working class women, the solution was not to rely upon other women to do the fighting for them, um, but to fight for, sorry, but to fight for their immediate empowerment. And those were the kind of conclusions that Sylvia Pankhurst drew in the course of the suffragette movement. That was very difficult, of course, for her, because what that meant um, was having a confrontation with her mother and her older sister over precisely these questions as they were leading the campaign. Sylvia Pankhurst drew these conclusions in very, very detailed research that she did. Um, she was an artist and um, 
in the course of the suffragette campaign, she undertook this extraordinary tour. Um, she went off um, from London uh, through the north of England, right up into Scotland, stopping at various places um, where she would then study the conditions in which working women were uh, were working and living, interviewing them about exactly how much they were paid, what their lives were like, and then trying to capture this um, in paintings. She did a very similar thing um, in 1911 and 1912 when she undertook two lecture tours of the United States. Um, these were lecture tours where she was promoting the suffragette movement in Britain. But at the same time, she ensured that she went round factories, um, that she went into prisons and colleges and that she interviewed women, um, particularly working class women, about the conditions that they were experiencing. And she took up a whole range of other issues as well, um, including very powerfully looking at, at racism in, in the United States. The conclusion that Sylvia Pankhurst drew from um, her own political position as a socialist and from her own research was that it was self-defeating for the, for the suffragette movement to rely on a very small group of women, um, elite women in society, and only the elite women that supported votes for women at that, to do the fighting on behalf of everybody else. That this was a campaign that was suffering intense state repression and persecution, um, and that essentially, if they relied on a very small group of women in society, this campaign could be very easily criminalized and shut down. But she also realized there was a positive basis um, to arguing that this should become a mass campaign rather than an elite campaign. And she drew that conclusion by looking at what was happening at the time. Because at the time Sylvia Pankhurst was making these arguments, Britain was undergoing what we now call the Great Unrest. The Great Unrest lasted from 1910 up until 1914, um, just recently been the subject of a, a book by Ralph Darlington. And the Great Unrest consisted of a massive strike wave that swept this country, um, that affected all of this country's major infrastructure. There were massive strikes on the docks, on the railways, in the mines, but also in factories, big and small, up and down the country. And it was a revolt, essentially, against the cost of living crisis, um, that, uh, which saw thousands of workers uh, take, take action. So this was the context in which Sylvia Pankhurst was arguing there was the basis for the suffragette movement to forge alliances with masses of people um, rather than relying on, on the few. On the one hand, she saw that the great unrest, those fighting in the great unrest, were facing the same enemy. It was the same government, it was the same Winston Churchill, um, that sent troops to go and fire on striking workers in South Wales, that was the same government, the same Winston Churchill, that sent police to go and attack women suffrage campaigners in Parliament Square. The same government that was imprisoning suffragettes, that was force feeding the suffragettes um, when they went on hunger strike in the prisons. So they had the same enemy, but she also thought that they shared the same interests, that essentially what was at stake in all of these struggles was a struggle for people to determine their own lives. It was a struggle for empowerment and that therefore there was a real basis for solidarity and for forming those alliances. For Sylvia Pankhurst, her vision of the way in which the vote was going to be won was not by an elite few, supposedly more enlightened than everybody else telling the government um, what kind of reforms ought to be enacted. She believed that the vote was only going to be won um, or would indeed best be won if it was forced upon the government by masses of people challenging all of the kind of uh, inequalities inside society. Sylvia Pankas was expelled from the WSPU for taking that stance. Um, she was expelled after she stood on the platform um, at the Albert Hall, obviously an enormous venue, alongside James Connolly, um, one of the leaders of the trade union struggle in Dublin. 
where they faced a particularly brutal response from the employers. Um, James Larkin, the, the leader of that struggle, the leader of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, was imprisoned. Um, and so James Connolly came to Britain to plead for um, the Trade Union Congress to take action in solidarity with Irish workers. And in that call, um, Sylvia Pankhurst joined him and linked the issue of women's disenfranchisement um, with the campaign in, in Ireland. And it was for taking that stance that she was expelled by her older sister, Christabel Pankhurst, from the suffragette movement. Um, and particularly, as Sylvia remembered it, it was over the kinds of women that Sylvia Pankhurst was organising amongst, because she had gone to East London, um, which was then as now uh, one of the poorest parts of London, the poorest parts of the city, uh, to organise a working class campaign for the vote. And in response to that, Christabel Pankhurst, this is from Sylvia's book, The Suffragette Movement, Christabel apparently told her, a working women's movement was of no value. Working women were the weakest portion of the sex. How could it be otherwise? Their lives were too hard, their education too meagre to equip them for the contest. Surely it is a mistake to use the weakest for the struggle, she said. We want picked women, the very strongest and most intelligent. So that was um, Christabel Pankhurst's judgment about what Sylvia Pankhurst was, was doing in East London about the women that she was working with. So after being expelled, Sylvia Pankhurst and the suffragettes in East London continued uh, to organise. They were now um, continuing a independent campaign in East London. And what they tried to do as the newly formed East London Federation of Suffragettes um, was they tried to, in practice, forge those links between the industrial struggle that was taking place and their own struggle for political rights. So they looked to the kind of tactics that were used in industrial struggles. They looked for a kind of militancy that working class women could be at the forefront of. It was very difficult, for obvious reasons, for working class women in large numbers to go to prison as individuals in, in the struggle. But these women wanted to be part of a militant campaign. And um, Sylvia Pankhurst knew from the great unrest that working class women, of course, had the capacity um, to take militant action. She'd also drawn the conclusion, unlike Christabel Pankhurst, that far from being the weakest um, portion of society, that working class women, of course, felt weak when they acted individually, but when they acted collectively, working class women had this huge power um, to stop production, to stop the, the production of all of the kind of goods and the, the running of society. And it was that kind of power they wanted to mobilize. So for example, one of the tactics that they were agitating for was the idea of a rent strike. Um, now, in working class households, it was women that paid the rent. So the idea was that they would put pressure on the landlord saying we're not paying the vote, uh, not paying the rent until the vote is granted. And this would be something that would not have to be done by women individually, but would be done as collective, um, but as a community. So these are one of the things that they did. They learned from James Connolly and the great unrest in Dublin. Um, James Connolly had established the Irish Citizens Army to defend workers um, when they were facing police brutality whilst on strike. Of course, the suffragettes faced police brutality. So in East London, they formed a people's army, um, which used to drill on the streets of East London um, to defend themselves from the police. And it was also going to be used in um, the labour movement as well. But also the kinds of women that they recruited were drawn from the great unrest. Melvina Walker, one of their best recruits, one of their best public speakers, was the wife of a striking docker and had participated in that struggle. Um, they recruited women who were involved in a massive strike of women workers at Morton's uh, packing factory in Millwall. Um, actually, it's the factory, I think, that sort of founded Millwall Football Club. Um, so they recruited women from, from there. 
but also women who joined the suffragettes in East London then brought their militant ideas. They became leaders in their own workplaces because they were the women that were trusted to stand up to the boss. So, for example, Annie Lake um, led a strike at Johnny Walker's bottling factory. Rose Pengelly, a 15-year-old um, who joined the Junior Suffragettes Club in East London, led a strike at an asbestos works, which must have been a particularly unpleasant place to work. You've had 25 minutes. Do you want another five minutes? Is that OK? That's all right. I promise to make it just five. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so Rose Pengelly, uh, this 15-year-old, and all her workmates called her Sylvia um, in tribute to, to Sylvia Pankhurst and the kind of inspiration that she provided. The point I want to end on is that when the First World War broke out, only really a few months after the East London Federation of Suffragettes became an independent organisation, the differences between the East London group and the Women's Social and Political Union became starkly apparent. The WSPU that said it was prioritising women's issues only, that it was a single issue campaign, in fact suspended its campaign uh, for women's rights and instead supported the preservation of the British Empire and supported the war effort. Sylvia Pankhurst's organisation continued to fight for women's rights uh, in many different forms, not just the right to vote, um, but also became an anti-war organisation. That initially was a very difficult thing to do. Um, if you think about a place like East London, um, of course, the employers in that area wanted to make a profit out of the war. Um, they were going to restructure um, and start producing for um, for the war drive. That meant laying off workers for a couple of weeks because why pay them um, while they got in new machinery and shifted production. That's an absolute catastrophe for working people that don't have any savings. Um, but of course, at the same time, you've got the government saying, why don't you enlist? You'll get paid. So huge pressure put on working class people to enlist into the forces. It then becomes very difficult to oppose the war um, initially if your brother um, if your husband, your son has has joined up to go off to fight. But also, of course, there was a huge amount of jingoistic propaganda, huge moral pressure um, to join the drive to war. After all, Germany had invaded Belgium um, and the government was saying this was a war in defence of poor little Belgium. Sylvia Pankhurst understood it wasn't that simple and she placed the war in the context of competitive imperialism. She didn't just see this as something that happened in August 1914. This was the result of the scramble for Africa. This was the result of the arms race and all of those things, and it had to be opposed. She didn't believe that suddenly the government had become friends um, with the suffragettes. They was The British government was still the enemy. And this is what she wrote um, three days before the British government joined the war. All sorts of reasons that sound glorious and patriotic are inevitably put forward in support of a declaration of war. But it is practically certain that every war of modern times has been fought with the purely materialistic object of forwarding the schemes and protecting the interests of powerful and wealthy financiers. For Sylvia Pankhurst, this was a new stage of the struggle and the struggle went on. She wasn't going to capitulate. This is what I think makes her still a dangerous suffragette for the establishment. But I think the very principled internationalist stance that she took then, which was a very, very brave thing to do, it was a stance based on her understanding of class interests and the way in which those hadn't gone away, but in fact were going to become intensified in the months that came around the war. That's the kind of stance, that's the kind of courage that actually inspires activists, and it's one that we need more urgently than ever today. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Catherine. That was um, uh, so helpful. And what an inspiring and insightful and incredible woman Sylvia was. And thank you for, for bringing that to, to life for us. Um, so thanks to everyone who's joining us. Um, so uh, particularly greetings to comrades tuning in from Ipswich, Milton Keynes, London, Southampton, Ireland and Oxford. Um, we've got around 100 people joining us live, so good to good to have you all with us. Um, do keep your comments and questions coming in the chat. We've got about 
um, 25 minutes for, for questions um, and to explore some of these themes in more detail. Um, Caroline Darmanin on YouTube says, when I was at school, I wrote an essay for my O-levels on Sylvia Pankhurst and my teacher knew nothing about her, um, which uh, I fear would be similar today um, in some cases. Um, thanks to M. Jem on Twitter, who says, how are you spending your lunch hour? I'm learning. Why not join me? Um, so, yeah, that's a good example to us, M. Jem. And um, if other people want to share the stream, then please do. Um, what better way to spend a lunch hour? Um, so we're now going to hear very briefly from Ben Hayes, who's a Labour Outlook contributor and Arise Festival volunteer, um, who's going to tell us a bit more about Arise Festival and what you can do to support. And then we'll come back to Catherine for some questions. Over to you, Ben. Hey, yeah, thanks very much, Rachel. Uh, I'm here to do the sort of Arise Festival's equivalent of the advertising breaks you get on TV. But if you uh, usually make those, uh, make your cup of tea during those, I'd urge you to stick around for this one. Not only because it'll be a bit less than three minutes, so you won't have time, but there is uh, important information. Uh, firstly, just to let you know about the next two sessions we've got in this sort of Friday lunchtime slot coming up. Uh, so a week today, we've got the economist Michael Roberts discussing what Marx and Engels would have to say about the current crisis. And then on Friday, 23rd of June, the Australian Labour historian Sandra Bloodworth will be joining us uh, for a form on the Paris Commune, glorious harbinger of a new society. So uh, look forward to those. Uh, and Arise is uh, yet to come across any billionaire sponsors. So we are reliant on uh, support financially uh, from all of you to use the kind of streaming platforms and things like that uh, for these sessions. Uh, if you are able to purchase a ticket for the festival as a whole I think the links will be posted in the chat uh, any contributions are very much appreciated uh, and just a reminder you can watch back any sessions you've missed or want to share with your friends uh, on our YouTube and Spotify pages um, including this one so if you want to let people know about this uh, that's how you can do it uh, thank you very much for joining us today uh, for what I thought was a really interesting uh, introduction and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the upcoming discussion Thanks, Ben. Um, echo those points about do, you know, contribute and, and tune in for further sessions. Um, so I've got two questions on um, from YouTube and one cheeky one from myself. Um, so firstly, could you, we'll do sort of three at a time if that's all right, and um, try not to get you to remember too many at once. Um, so the first one, could you say some more on how Sylvia showed foresight in understanding the menace of fascism in Italy and some of the discussions and activities she was involved in on this issue, um, which, sorry, I cut you a little bit short. <laughs> we were um, she moved on to in her, her later life, didn't she? So be good to hear more about that. Um, secondly, why is it when we celebrate the lives of historic figures um, like Sylvia Pankhurst, their radicalism and socialism tends to be ignored. Um, and thirdly, my own question, which is, could you say a bit more about Sylvia's political journey? Because clearly she started off in a place, you know, with her mother and sister who turned out to be complete, um, unfortunately, rather reactionary um, in their later years. And, um, you know, she came from a, a similar background, obviously, but then expanded her own political framework to include sort of working class movements and then you know but you know in her final years more the anti-imperialist movement a very internationalist um approach so I'm, I'm quite interested in how she progressed in that way where the others progressed in the um opposite direction um so just that small little question would be uh, good to address and uh, over to you again yeah, thank you. Those are great questions. Um, first of all, in terms of um, in terms of the question about her um, her foresight around fascism, I mean, Sylvia Pankhurst was always an internationalist, so she was always very interested in you know she was never kind of parochial. Um, she was never you know purely interested in in the struggle in one country. She didn't see it in that way um but she had particular links to italy um and especially um through silvia corio um who was who was her partner um 
and her partner probably since 1917. Um, and he was a, an exile from Italy, a political exile. Um, and so in, he was um, uh, he was also a, you know a journalist and and a printer. So he was very well connected to uh, Italian radicals um who who knew what was what was going on there um but also there was there was her connection um via the communists she was quite close to a number of uh italian communists she went as we know to international conferences in italy and actually she witnessed some of the fascist violence um in 1919 in bologna um and in, and that's when i think she first reports uh records the name benito mussolini in her in her newspaper um so she she knew where that was coming from and also she understood that fascism was the counter revolution you know she'd been inspired by the russian revolution that wave of revolutionary activity that swept europe um in well that, that brought to an end really the the first world war um, and this was the establishment response. This was a frightened establishment who, you know, were looking at what happened um, to the Tsarist Empire, um, who didn't want that happening in their countries. And they saw the fascists as a, a sort of promised return to you know, what was called stability. They believed the fascists were going to crush the left. And this is why people like um, Churchill were, were very, very um relaxed and even very enthusiastic to see fascist forces uh, initially on on the scene. Sylvia Pankhurst obviously didn't take that approach. She understood this was a threat um, to the to kind of revolutionary dreams that, um, that had, you know, arisen in, in that period. So so she knew what was happening in Italy um, for, for all of those reasons. And then she started to to try and raise awareness about it because also there was uh, there was lots of complacency about it and lots of confusion about what fascism actually was. This, you know, came as quite a new phenomenon, promising uh, new things. So she entered into a big polemic with George Bernard Shaw about this, for example, who was very kind of um, you know, complimentary in some ways about Italian fascism. And she was saying, you've got this wrong. You have to retract this. Um, so she really understood the, the nature of it right from the start. And she also, with Silvio Corio, um, campaigns to um, kind of uh, against fascist influences in London in in the Italian community there. So um, that was a big, big part of uh, of her activism. Um, very important in terms of why the radicalism and the socialism is ignored. Um, I mean, I think it's still I think it's still dangerous. Um, I think I think that's what it is. It's this is actually what inspires us. I think, in a way, um, you know, we could see around the centenary of uh, some women winning the right to vote. So, twenty eighteen, um, the centenary of the representation representation of the People Act in uh, nineteen eighteen, which gave the right to vote to women over the age of thirty um, who fulfilled certain property uh, requirements. Um, you know, there was a, there was a celebration of that, that, that everyone could get involved in. Um, you know, Theresa May used that as, as a platform, um, to talk about herself and her place in politics. So I guess is my take on it. Um, so that, you know, was, was something that we were told was just a universal celebration. And I think that's very dangerous because, um, what it says is these issues in the past, um, it's a way for the British state to come out of this looking very smug and actually patting itself on the back. Um, if you include Sylvia Pankhurst in the story, then the struggle is unfinished. And that's something the British state um, are less able to co-opt or incorporate um, because it says that um, the oppressions that were being fought against then are still relevant now. And you think about the kind of things that the East London suffragettes were talking about low wages, high rents, poor conditions at work, police violence. These are issues that haven't gone away. Um, so I think uh, I think that's why uh, is, is my is my take on it. But I'd be interested to hear what what other people think. Um, and just in terms of your question, Rachel, about Sylvia's political journey, which is a really interesting one. Um, I mean, I think the reason that there's that divergence um, in the Pankhurst family is it's different responses to 
uh, the frustration that's felt by campaigners when a campaign reaches dilemmas, when it hasn't been won. Um, and in particular, I think one of the sort of turning points is when they've undertaken the most kind of significant example of mass action that the Women's Social and Political Union do. In 1908, they're challenged to prove that there's popular support for votes for women by the government. The government says, well, we would grant it, but you don't have popular support, so um, you don't get the vote. So they organised a massive demonstration, not just a big demonstration, but what was at that point the biggest demonstration in British political history in Hyde Park, and the government just ignored it. So then there's a there's a question that's raised for um, for those suffrage campaigners. What direction do you do you go in? Do you give up on mass action after that? Um, and that's what that's what Emmeline and Christabel did, I think. Um, whereas for Sylvia Pankhurst, I think the great un she draws lessons from the great unrest that has an important ra radicalizing effect on her. Um, and there's also the basis for her to try and implement the kind of mass action that she believes is possible. So it's it's those sort of two things. Um, of course, that's not the only political development in her life or, or that we could talk about. Um, you know, there's the fact that she becomes a communist um, in in the First World War. And again, I think that's to do with very real developments that are taking place. She looks at the Soviets um, in Russia. Um, she sees an example of direct democracy. She sees that as superior um, to parliament. Um, and, and that's, you know, in particular what really inspires her about, about Russia. She then looks at the big social changes that are made in the aftermath of the revolution, things that, you know, um, would take such a long time um, under, you know, a parliamentary democracy. She has arguments with Lenin. She adopts what's called a left communist position. Um, then there's, there's, you know, her later anti-fascism. There's lots and lots of different, um, very interesting political developments that uh, that she has. Um, and yeah, we can maybe maybe talk about some of those, but I'll I'll end there so I don't drone on. Thanks, Catherine. Um, yeah, um, that's yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I could do with a few more people going on that same political journey. Um, a couple more for you. Um, so one is to ask whether you see any parallels between the tactics of the suffragettes and um, the campaigns around Just Stop Oil and things today and whether there's yeah any parallels you'd like to, to draw um, and, and what Sylvia's view was of those sort of direct action um, tactics. Um, second one, um, it is it's good to hear about the revival of of interest in in Sylvia's life and and works and um yet it feels like the women's movement overall is is at quite a low ebb um particularly under the the Starmer leadership in the Labour Party um going backwards but yet there's been a sort of wave of industrial action where women are in the front line um nurses teachers obviously not all women but majority women professions in my own um union in ucu you know we're still fighting to overturn a, the gender pay gap um what lessons can we learn from sort of sylvia's experience in east london um about how to how women can come to the fore in these um struggles and make sure they're not always sort of women in the background led by men um and make sure those those issues are at the, the front of our campaigning. Um, and just to say thanks to um, everyone who's watching on, on YouTube for your um, nice comments. So um, Jan O'Malley said, learn so much, wonderful talk, thanks for organising. And Jeff Taylor says, now keen to read Catherine's book on Syl Sylvia Pankhurst. So um, <laughs> you've done a good job of <laughs> selling that. Um, before I ask you to sort of come back and make any sort of concluding remarks. Um, can I just thank everyone who's been watching for um, taking part and making comments and asking questions and and just remind people to make a buy a ticket for the whole of um, Arise, a festival of left ideas. And as mentioned, you know, we do need to sell all those tickets to, to cover the costs of this month, which really is one of the um, 
main places we we are getting our political education at the moment and we're very grateful to all the volunteers who make it happen um and if you've already got a ticket why not become a friend of arise for five pounds a month and help arise expand um just to remind people that the next discussion in these weekly socialist ideas slot is on Marx and Engels and today's capitalist crisis that's at 1pm on Friday the 16th of June um, and there'll be a major discussion on Palestine on Monday at 6.30pm so do buy a ticket and register for all the events throughout the festival um, and Catherine I'm going to ask you to to try and come back on those questions again quite wide ranging um, but show how relevant what Sylvia's sort of writings and leading by example really she wasn't you, you know she you said her main sort of job really was to be a journalist but she she was much more than that wasn't she 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 wasn't just sort of standing on the sidelines commentating she was right in the heart of um of the campaigns and and leading them and not just organizing but leading with her ideas as well and help you know part of that whole um left progress across Europe um so sorry that's just my <laughs> my uh take on it um but um yeah to, if you'd like to sort of sum up and, and answer those those questions that would be great and thanks to you again for um bringing this to us well thank you very very much for um really interesting excellent questions and thanks to you Rachel um for sorting those so and the whole team for sorting them so calmly but behind the scene it's looked it's looked seamless um but i know it can be um yeah th no th thanks for organizing the discussion so well it's been it's been lovely um in terms of the first question about parallels with um with just stop oil i think is a really interesting question and um i think the approach to it is uh, Sylvia gives us a very useful way of of thinking about this. I think actually this is one of her contributions that um, is most useful right now. Um, she had a real dilemma just before she goes to East London and, and sets up her um, her kind of campaign along her political lines, uh, which was about how to argue for a different way or a different politics in the struggle without seeming to um, denigrate the efforts of very, very brave activists who were risking their lives for something that she believed in and who were her comrades. Um, and so she always defended um, the militancy of the suffragettes and um, she never joined in with an establishment condemnation of them. And I think that's a really important starting point that um, Just Stop Oil and other climate activists are raising awareness about um, one of the most important issues that faces us um and have been very successful at getting media coverage over that and it's frightened the establishment and the establishment um in part as a response to this and also to other things are trying to criminalize the rights of protest as a response and that's something we need a massive fight back uh against as well as um a massive movement around climate change and i guess that's the the sort of other side of this um that if we're going to combat climate change um then we need more than some stunts and i'm not saying um that that's necessarily the view of all the activists undertaking these stunts um very visibly very bravely um but i think that is an important thing to remember um this can this is something that simply cannot be achieved um by a small minority um this is something that we are going to win as the masses so then the question is where does direct action fit into that um and what is the value of direct action civil disobedience all of those kind of things and sylvia i think has a really interesting answer to this she wrote 
a uh, she, it's in it's there in her books, but it's also there very clearly in a, a short manuscript in her papers called The Women's Movement of Yesterday and Tomorrow. And there she talked about her um, thinking about militancy and her test um, about whether militant tactics were effective um, was whether they brought in wider support, whether they galvanised wider support. And she said at the beginning of the suffragette movement, the kind of things the suffragettes were doing inspired people. Um, They made people want to join that campaign, to look up to them, to want to be like them um, and to feel that, that they could participate. That changes towards the end of the campaign because the politics of the campaign change. So um, the way that militancy is used is not to bring more people on board. Um, in Christabel Pankhurst's um, view, in her iteration of it, it is to punish the general public for not supporting them. Um, so it becomes something that is undemocratic, um, that is elitist, and it's hostile to the vast majority of people and actually says the vast majority of people won't get it. And I think it's really important then that we kind of think about how that, um, you know, I think that's a very helpful formulation. Um, and I think it's very helpful in terms of thinking about the climate crisis. Are we saying this is some, you know, because the establishment version of this is, is that climate change is all our fault. Like we're too selfish. We're, we're all just consumers. That's the way that we're regarded. Um, so we're to blame. So there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and that leads, I think, to a very... Uh, that is very elitist, but it can also trip up some activists into kind of thinking the same thing, that there's only a few people that are able to confront or understand the scale of the problem. And I don't think that's true. I think loads of people are terrified about uh, about climate change. So we've got to think about what activities, what actions can bring on board the vast majority of people um, to fight the big climate polluters in the world. Um, and so I think that is about thinking about this as a class fight. Um, how do we bring on board working class people across the globe who are going, of course, to suffer disproportionately because of this, because we live in a class divided society? That is that's the challenge. And of course, militancy plays a role there. Um, you know, but we've got to think about, you know, where are we strong again in the workplaces, uh, for example, uh, where where can we fight this? Um, so I think that's uh, that's only part of an answer. But I think uh that's where Sylvia helps us a bit with that. Um, in terms of um, the kind of reversals to women's rights that have been that you know that we're experiencing um, in terms of Keir Starmer um, and what's going on at the moment, I want to just say a few things. Um, one is that I don't think actually. Keir Starmer is particular. His politics are particularly popular. I don't think they resonate um, with the vast majority of people. I think that's that's sort of blatantly obvious, really. Um, I think the reason that he is leader of the Labour Party um, is because he said he was going to kind of continue Corbyn's legacy, which was popular. That proved not to be not to be true. Um, and I think he, like whole sections of the establishment, uh, of which I would count him as one, um, were terrified by what, what Jeremy Corbyn represented. Um, and in particular because, because of the politics that Corbyn stood for, um, did resonate and, and were so popular. So I think that's important to remember that although, um, Starmer is obviously witch hunting the left, um, and involved in that, I think, um, is you know an attack on women's rights i don't think that this represents what what most people think um so i think that's that's important to to remember um and i think we are seeing the resurgence of struggle over these things it's not to say that we're not being attacked it's not to say that there haven't been these massive reversals um but what i'm seeing is resistance and i think um that's what we should always look for we should always look for where the struggle is um, there has been has been actual resistance to the way that police treat women now. I think that's really that's really important. That's really exciting. Uh, I think the person who asked the question is absolutely right to talk about um, the trade union struggle. And of course, it's not inevitable that that's going to deliver um, results. But um, I think, therefore, what we've got to think about is is strengthening that struggle. I think the worst thing would be um, would be for those those struggles that are taking place at the moment to be defeated. Um, so the hope is in the struggle, the hope being the hope that we can win. And if we win, 
that can empower us, um, empowers us to take on all sorts of other things um, that, that are going on around us. You know, a victory to the nurses, um, for example, would, uh, I think, inspire um, workers in, in all sorts of other, other workplaces. It would be um, a win in a workplace where, you know, the majority of the workforce is female. That will have a massive impact um, in terms of women's confidence, women's rights, and our view of where women's liberation comes from. Um, you know, I talked about those two high points, I think, when people are really interested in Sylvia Pankhurst and the suffragette movement, it, it follows patterns of struggle. Um, it did not follow Margaret Thatcher becoming prime minister. Um, and, you know, that version of women's rights that tells us, you know, it's all about getting women into um, important positions. So I think it would be a really important um, thing if if we can uh if we can see victories um in the the struggle that um that is ongoing at the moment and so i think we need to throw all of our efforts into achieving um the the best victories that we can achieve uh on on that front um and i think inevitably that will that will mean um empowering the rank and file members in those in those struggles um that's what that's what that's about i think um and that's what sylvia pankhurst was was about so i'll, I'll finish there brilliant thank you so much catherine for um for those answers and for, for bringing sylvia's legacy to life and um i think we could discuss for much longer the sort of relevance of her writings to today's struggles because even in those last sort of couple of answers you you know we can see um there's a debate to be had isn't there about about all these things and um how how Sylvia would have seen the tactics because really um it is you know some of the the issues of class and race and um women's liberation have have they've moved on but they're essentially quite similar to their what what was uh, going on 100 years ago or or so on so um I do urge people to to read more from Sylvia and about Sylvia from Catherine um and others and to obviously to join further sessions from Arise and um thanks very much everyone for for tuning in and see you at the next session